The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Earnings coming up. We've had the banks. We've had some tech. Tech wasn't very good. Thank you very much, Silicon Valley. Uh, now we're going to get into some of the big uh, insurance companies, and let's get a preview of what we might see. Matt Palazzoli, he's a senior analyst uh, covering insurance for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio because he is a professional. He is in the office. Matt, what do we need to look for here in these big insurance companies? We've got a rising interest rate environment. How does that play through in the earnings what, that you're going to be seeing? So uh, for the insurance companies, uh, they make a, a lot of their income on investment income. So they, they invest their premiums and uh, they get the fl with the float. And with rising interest rates, they're invested almost 90% in fixed income. So it's kind of a, just a all, all upside from here. If it's all upside from here, put that into perspective with the rate hike that you're now potentially seeing. We're looking at 75 basis points priced into the market. Walk us through at least for the people like me who don't know insurance as well as you do, how that actually affects the bottom line for the likes of Geico, for example. Sure. So, uh, like I said, they get premiums in, they invest them in high quality fixed income and uh, generate investment income. So the, the average duration of the portfolios is about four years. So it's not instant. It takes time for the portfolio to run over. Um, but the investment income goes up, uh, you know, pay taxes on it and go straight to the bottom line. All right. Our good buddy out in Omaha, Nebraska, Warren Buffett, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, they're reporting numbers. They do it on a Saturday. First of all, what's up with that? Why do they do it on a Saturday? I, Paul, you were a sell-side analyst. Like, <laughs> we, we're used to working on the weekend. Um, yep. They do it uh, on the weekend so that there's kind of no market reaction until okay. Monday. I guess they could do it after the close on a day, but they like yeah. to do it and give quote, you know, give the market time to digest. All right. So he else. still does the big rents out the arena and mm -hmm. and all the Warren Buffett acolytes go out there to kind of hear him and Mr. Munger speak and all that kind of stuff. Is that still the case? That is still the case that happened already. So that, they okay, do that. that's the annual meeting. OK, uh, that's with earlier results. So we're just talking third quarter results. Here. Okay. There's no no call or anything, anything, like anything there that we should be looking out for. Like, so, I, I mean, for Warren Buffett, it's always what are you going to do with the cash? Where's right. the next big deal? Now, I know they bought this reinsurance company, Allegheny. They just closed a week or so ago. So that what closed. Else? That was announced earlier. I don't think they're doing anything big uh, in the near term. They've been bulking up on Occidental stock. So with the warrants that they have and the ownership already, they have about 30% really? of the company, and they've got approval to own 50%. My favorite Berkshire Hathaway company, because they own... A I, lot yep, yep. In, in a massive portfolio in Dairy every Queen. sector. Sorry? Dairy Queen. Do they really? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, okay, well, it's not Dairy Queen. Okay. It's not my favorite. Seize Candy. Mine is, are you going to keep guessing all of the yes. companies? This, <laughs> this could take up the rest of the show. Uh, BNSF yes. Railway. Uh, that is, I think, the most fascinating one. When we were covering the rail strike, yep. one of the companies at the heart of the issue was uh, BNSF. 
any any thoughts there? It's interesting to me that they're investing more in the kind of Occidental uh, BNSF. Uh, it's kind of invest in stuff you know. Well, it's very industrials. It's very yes, right. it's very Warren Buffett. Yes, <laughs> very very Warren Midwest. Buffett. So so they have a big energy business besides their investments in Chevron and, and Oxy. Yeah. Um, so I'm the insurance analyst, but I know a little bit about railroads. Um, <laughs> the the thing about Burlington yeah, sorry, Northern, really put you, put you that's okay. You put there, me on the spot. Um, the their volumes went down this quarter, so they were moving less stuff. Yep. But uh, their revenue gets boosted by fuel surcharges. Right, which seems a little uh, uh, paradoxical, but they actually can their revenue will go up because they pass across that that uh, fuel cost. So I think revenue goes up, but volumes were down for Burlington Northern. Hey Matt, I'm looking at the S and P 500 Property and Casualty Insurance Sub Industry GIX Level Four Index. It's up 14 percent this year. So the insurance stocks have done they really outperform the market. What's the when you talk to institutional investors today, what are they saying? They're saying we've kind of made our money, we're done, or we got more room to go. So, I would say coming out of the third quarter, uh, I wasn't I wasn't inspired. Um, these stocks have done well. They're kind of good inflation hedges generally for commercial insurance. People have to buy it no matter what. Yep. Um, but that story may have played out a little bit through the year. Um, the the margin outlook is not, if anything, it's it's negative revisions going forward. So I can see why it might have stalled out. What about the impact of Hurricane Ian, very quickly? How much damage did that do? That was big. We think about $60 billion for the industry. It's going to cost Berkshire several billion, um, but very manageable, and it might actually reaccelerate some pricing. What's the? Explain to me the reinsurance business. I'll give you 20 seconds. The free insurance <laughs> business is insurance for insurance companies. Uh, it protects you, it protects your top uh, layer if you have a giant loss. So you say, okay, if I lose a billion dollars, I want the reinsurance company to take 500 of it and I pay them a fee. And companies need that specifically smaller ones in Florida, but everyone can use it as a bit of capital management. And is there any backup for the reinsurer or is that the government? There's retro reinsurance, which is reinsurance Jeez. for reinsurance. <laughs> <laughs> Do we cover those companies? We cover some of those too. Most of them sell both of it. All right. Good stuff. At insurance business, all the I know is I just it just comes out of my check, and I'm like, okay, whatever. I I'm, I guess I'm insured. I guess I'm covered. I, you know, that's I guess we'll find about out. the extent of my knowledge of <laughs> the insurance business. So uh, anyway, Matt Palazzola, he knows it a lot better. Thank thankfully, uh, he's a senior analyst covering the property and casualty insurance sector for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, looking at this market here, kind of just really not much conviction one way or the other. Uh, kind of unched on the S&P 500 today. Uh, and we'll see how what we get out of the Fed tomorrow. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, Sam Fazelli. He's in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. That is cause for celebration. He's the head of European research. He's a pharmaceutical analyst. But the only time, Critty, we've ever wanted to talk to him over the last three years has been about COVID. But he actually has a day job. He actually does stuff. Yes, he actually has a day job. He's like one of the best pharmaceutical analysts uh, in Europe. Uh, he's he's been okay. doing it for decades. <laughs> so now we can get back to just nuts and bolts pharmaceutical analysis. And these are mega companies. They do deals all the time. Another deal got done today. But let's talk about Sam 
some of the big companies reporting numbers here. So let's talk about Eli Lilly, Pfizer. What are you seeing from some of these big companies? Because they, they are global companies. They have to deal with the stronger dollar. Um, what are you seeing from some of these big pharma companies? Yeah, so all of them are obviously suffering is perhaps the yeah. right or wrong phrase, but suffering from the strength of the dollar. But, but you saw that in Pfizer's case, it didn't really matter because it seems like governments want to still soak up as much COVID vaccines as possible. So if you look at their beat today and look at their guidance raise, which of course has got the stock up about 3%, yep. um, it's pretty much all to do with the community vaccine. Um, and that's through government orders. Let's not forget, this is not available to you and I to go and just buy in a shop. So which vaccine is this? Community, it's called. The okay. COVID vaccine. COVID vaccine, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a catchy name, community, right? It's better yeah. than some random, <laughs> exactly. un, unpronounceable drug yeah. names. So that's been what's driving that stock. I mean, the dollar was really not a story for them. Of course, it is It is impacting them, but it's not a story for them. Lily was interesting because the stock's down four. It was down a bit more at the early. It's up and down. The only reason they missed or they've reduced guidance is because of dollar. Now, I would usually see through that, right? Whereas the base business for Lilly is amazing. They've done a phenomenal job in bringing new drugs, one after the other. And of course, today, Munjaro is the one that everyone's looking at. And what does that treat? New diabetes drug okay. with the best efficacy you've ever seen. And it also helps you drop 20 pounds. Okay. So okay. this is the drug that everyone's trying to figure out. Is it a 10 billion or a 15 or a 20? And some people have got some random numbers out there at a hundred billion market potentially for these. You said drugs, best which. efficacy you've ever seen for diabetes drugs. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. a phenomenal, phenomenal. So he's got a job. PhD in something science related. So I guess something sciencey. Yeah, yeah sciencey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that stock, Paul. If you look at the multiple and you look at how far it's up this year and what the expectations are, I'm not surprised it's giving up a little today. But at the end of the day, it is one of the best growth stories similar to what we also see for AstraZeneca in Europe uh, across pharma. All right, so when I look at, so that, that's Lilly, and we'll get to a big, big sector call in a second. But Pfizer, with, it's got such a big lift in their sales uh, from the COVID drug. I'm looking at the FA function on the Bloomberg terminal, 42 billion of revenue in, in 2020, exploding to 80 billion in 2021, uh, going to close to 100 billion this year. And then it drops pretty significantly. So if I'm an investor in Pfizer, do I want to be anywhere near a story where I've got revenue de decline, significant declines? Yeah, so that's the toughest thing. I've just come off the call, which is still going on. Okay. And that is the question. What's going to happen in 2023? Now, I put my neck on the line saying that I think vaccines are not going to do anywhere near the numbers they've done this year, next year. Partly because I think people are just going to get over the idea. But they are doing clever things, i.e. combining it with a flu vaccine, so you just get one shot. Etc. And they're talking about pricing, which is five or six times higher the numbers that have been charging governments. So you can make up for a lot of volume loss. So do I have to way. pay for like, if I get a COVID shot next year? Next year, I mean, do you mind taking five percent or one percent of the cash you carry with you and pay a hundred bucks for it? Probably not. No. Okay. Yeah, but right. but. You and I are not the people who cares right. for this, right? That's At right. the end of the day, you need the volume. And this is the problem that most people have right now. They don't know how to model 2023. They've been saying, look, we'll give you as much of a guide as possible. We have to wait till the 12th of December when they have their, um, uh, they have an R&D call or a d d analyst day. So. Right, okay.
Well, speaking of the COVID vaccine, one of the major drivers this morning, at least in the pre-market, was rumors that potentially China might be uh, reconsidering their COVID zero policy at some point. Um, Tom Orlick of Bloomberg Economics uh, came on Bloomberg Surveillance and said the timeline of that is not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be next week. It's going to be at the earliest if this is indeed true. Once again, un. Uh, confirmed rumors at the at the moment will be the first quarter of 2023 is that the time frame you would agree with yeah i mean look the, the, he yeah, president g doubled down or the company yeah. the, the country has doubled down on the on the zero covid the problem they have is you, you cannot avoid deaths and infections even if you vaccinate 100 percent of the people because not everybody responds to the vaccine yeah. and also uh, you have a situation where some of the vaccines will never give you the kind of protection that you want, even the ones that we have here. So whether the, I don't think that's driving the the, the, the vaccine names here um, b because they've had the opportunity to have these vaccines in, in China for two years, over two years with BioNTech or Moderna. I, I think the Chinese are likely to be waiting to get something more regional, something that they have made. Right, to get so, that through to the market. So to that end, let me ask you a science question. Um, can't they just go and get a Pfizer vaccine, a Moderna vaccine, they being the Chinese government and scientists, and just reverse engineer it and say, hey, we've now got our Chinese vaccine? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's as easy as that because so, there's so many steps involved in them, this manufacturing. Okay. You could try and make something similar to it, but whether it'll be identical or not, who knows? I mean, even the two vaccines are not identical between Moderna right. and Pfizer, right? Right. All right. So let's step back here. Uh, you're talking to your big institutional investor clients all over the world. What are they saying about big pharma? Do I buy it as a, or is this something that it's already been a nice safe haven for me? I'm going to rotate out into some more maybe cyclical stuff. Yeah. So really, I, I want to bounce that back at you. Do you see cyclical stocks moving? Because if that's the if the day that that people start making that decision, the defensives including pharma. Well, we had the Dow Jones Industrial just put up its best month of October since 1976. So there was a lot of, like Caterpillar had some great numbers last week, you know, and, and conversely, the big tech companies uh, that I know well had some disappointing numbers. So maybe it's already starting to happen a little bit. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't know, but I think if I'm big pharma, I just think it's such a great place to be because they're big, they're growing. Um, lots of free cash flow, uh, dividends and things like that. I'm just not sure what's the bear case for big pharma is always a part of my portfolio. I think that that pretty much makes sense to me because they have a phenomenal innovation that's going on, which is feeding off the f fantastic work that scientists have been doing. That is that is not the issue. The thing is, if you're talking five to ten years, there's very little doubt for me that, that you need to have some exposure to pharma because that is they've always been cash generative, even if the Inflation Reduction Act eventually bites the way that it's been doing, they have ways of, of getting away from its impacts. But really, I think this is definitely the case. Short-term trading is a different argument, discussion. What are you drinking in uh, Bordeaux these days? Uh, what did I have? I had uh, a, um, uh, a nice bottle of Léoville Poiferé. All right. 2001. Sounds good to me. Sam Fazelli, head of European Economic Research, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. All right, let's talk banks, uh, Critty. We love talking banks, big global banks. We've seen some pretty solid numbers out of most of them, uh, certainly the U.S. banks. But I want to break it down a little bit. I also want to talk about Credit Suisse, my former employer, Allison Williams, senior global banks analyst. 
Allison, what's the latest on Credit Suisse here? I mean, yet another uh, restructuring here. I kind of hear some M&A noise out there. What's the latest? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure why uh, the M&A noise is is surfacing today when they've you know sort of made their announcements. They've they've already made the choice to um, dilute the current shareholders, shore up capital, and sort of move on and. I think it's going to be a tough slog for the bank from here, um, but you know, if if not now, I'm not sure when. I guess if you will on on M and A. Um, I think the just given it's a restructuring and things are choppy, maybe there continues to be um, noise around the bank. But I think that a lot of the rumors that sort of get circulated are um, you know would be very difficult to come to fruition. So. For example, Credit Suisse combining with any other major bank, you know, there's uh, the regulate the regulations, especially involving cross-border regulations, would really make it, um, you know, it's not impossible, but close to that. Allison, I heard an analogy this morning, I believe by Charlie Wells over in our London office, and he kind of said the way that buyers may be looking at Credit Suisse or potential buyers, I should say, was kind of like going into a, a suit shop and really just going to buy a tie, but then ending up buying the whole suit. Is that the way to think about this? I mean, I think that you're maybe one step farther than that today. Um, you know, that I think that was the case and, and why, uh, you know, going sort of going into the announcement and so much speculation about what will they keep, what will they get rid of, what will they keep, you know. Um, but I think what, what they sort of made clear is that, you know, they're finally stepping away from some businesses that, you know, are not, you know, adjacent to the tie. So you need you need a shirt and a collar to, to wear with the tie. Maybe the shirt is very integral with how the tie looks, but who cares about the pants? The pants are something that you wear, but don't really impact how the tie looks. And so some of the businesses that they are getting rid of, the Securitized Product Group, for example, you know, is a great profitable business over time, but it tends to have its its worst performance in bad times. So that, you know, always uh, is, is not good to, to sort of be made more that vulnerable. And it really has nothing to do with their core wealth business. So, you know, moving that out, moving ownership uh, of that out, you know, it's still not finalized in terms of what the, what the terms are going to be. I think yep. those are kind of the things that people are waiting on. Um, but I think they are, you know, really trying to take a bigger step to hone, hone the focus. We hear this from, you know, we've been hearing this from, you know, banks like Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse for, for multiple years. Yep. Deutsche Bank finally made the tough move, got rid of equities trading, focused on what they're good at, finally getting some benefit from the environment. Things are working out for them. Right. Um, you know, Credit Suisse finally making some tougher choices. Like I said, the, the business is good, and I think that's why they didn't want to move away from it, but they really had to focus on, you know, protecting the core at this point. Allison, just real quick, 30 seconds. The Saudi National Bank now owns 37% of Credit Suisse. Has the bank received pushback from the U.S. or Swiss governments on this? You know, there's there's obviously a lot of headlines around it. I'm, I'm not going to go down that path, but, um, you know, that that's certainly something that's gotten attention in terms of who the shareholder is. Yeah, it's interesting to see how that plays out. But uh, I guess at this point, Credit Suisse uh, needs the capital 
uh, and they know the Saudi National Bank. So uh, good to get an update uh, on Credit Suisse. Always seems to be in the no in the news here today. Uh, Allison Williams, senior bank analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She is based in our Princeton office. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. numbers came in higher than expected. We also had some eco data coming out of the ISM kind of showing con continued, I guess, slowdown in some of the uh, manufacturing sector uh, from the prior month. So all this, I guess, adds up for the market saying, hey, this Fed, they can keep raising rates here a little bit here. I don't have to worry about that. So Lindsay Piegza, uh, she does this for a living. She's the chief economist, managing director at Stiefel. So, Lindsay, again, some eco data today that seems to give maybe the Fed some more cover to continue to raise rates. How do, how do you think the next you know, 24 hours are going to play out for our Federal Reserve? Well, I think, as you mentioned, the decision this week is pretty much already baked into the cake or baked into market expectations. The bigger question is, how does the Fed frame the economic outlook for future policy adjustments, particularly as we come up with that final December summary of economic projections? Now, the Fed has consistently revised higher its forecasts for rates and inflation by nearly 200 basis points. And I do expect that given the backdrop of a still solid labor market, a five-decade low in the unemployment rate and a near four-decade high in inflation, the Fed will continue to revise higher expectations beyond what the market is anticipating in terms of that terminal rate come 2023. Well, Lindsay, if you're starting to see the market really hit consensus, which I want to say they did a couple of, of weeks ago, really, and, and all these investment banks are just now catching up, uh, cough, cough, Goldman. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I have to ask about why you're seeing so much bond market volatility then. If the consensus is 75 tomorrow, 50 in December, 25 in uh, February and March. Well, it could be that the market consistently underestimates inflation. We look at the Bloomberg data and we see that forecasts are typically about 50 to even 100 basis points below the reality of inflation. And looking right now, we're well above what the Fed anticipated would be the year-end level of prices and even further above, of course, the Fed's 2% target range. So it may be that the market is more looking at what it hopes to happen as opposed to what the Fed will need to do to realistically rein in price pressures, which if we take the Fed at their word, they say that is their primary concern right now, their primary focus, willing to take more pain now in order to ensure longer run price stability for the economy, the bedrock, as Chairman Powell tells us, of the economy. Lindsay, what's your recession call here? And you know, a lot of folks are just wondering, A, is it going to happen? B, how long will it be? C, how deep will it be? How do you frame that for your clients? Well, I think it's a pretty difficult outlook for the economy at this point. Should the Fed remain on this more aggressive pathway, I think a recession is all but insured. But that being said, I do think the consumer is starting from a relatively stronger 
position than in previous cycles. And so we may have a bit more uh, leeway or a bit more stability on the part of the consumer going forward, still at very low levels, but still in positive territory. That translates to me to a prolonged period of negative activity, but very minimal uh, negative activity through 2023 before potentially getting back into a more robust position of economic strength as we come out in 2024. Lindsay, I've been asking all the guests this. You specifically mentioned how the commodities trade is perhaps baked into the market. Is it worth reconsidering the market consensus given that we have a potential windfall tax on oil companies that historically has shown to halt production or I should at least stymie it and put make prices higher at the same time you have issues in the grains market when it comes to Ukraine? We're talking about peak inflation being in the rearview mirror, but can we be 100% sure of that? Oh, absolutely not. I think the risk to inflation is certainly to the upside. You talk about windfall taxes, international conflict, political uncertainty overseas. All of these factors leave a lot of question marks when we talk about the longer-term trajectory of agricultural commodity energy costs, all playing into how that's going to affect broader-based inflation here in the U.S., So the notion that we're going to see this nice, steady, downward trajectory of prices, allowing the Fed to nice and neatly back off from rate increases, that seems a bit too easy, if you will, and certainly premature relative to what we're seeing in terms of market volatility. So I'm not quite on board yet that the worst of the, the scenario in terms of price pressures is behind us. Lindsay, what's your call on the consumer here? We're going to obviously get some jobs data on Friday. How resilient is this this consumer in your mind going forward? Well, I do think the consumer has a certain number of variables that are adding temporary support. Consumers are increasingly willing to eat through the remaining savings that they have. They've also been benefited by some additional state and local stimulus that has come down the pipeline with nearly a dozen states or large governments, excuse me, large cities, implementing another round of direct payments. We also see consumers increasingly turning to credit card debt or other sources of debt to supplement their spending. So all of these factors together have been able to provide some temporary support that is likely to linger for some time, maybe one, two, uh, three months, maybe longer. Now, it's certainly not enough to provide robust consumer activity. We're not talking about four or five, six percent growth, but we are still talking about positive activity in the range of one to two percent real spending, which should be enough to help provide, again, at least a floor to economic growth as we fall back into negative territory, presumably in the fourth quarter. All right, Lindsay, really good stuff. We really, really appreciate getting your time, your perspective. That's Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist and Managing Director over at Stiefel. Well, we're a week away from midterm elections. There's several key states that have some uh, competitive races, and that's obviously uh, going to have an impact on control of the House and Senate. Uh, one of the uh, swing votes or one of the areas that you know these politicians are trying to attract is the labor vote. So we want to get a sense of how that might break. So we welcome Kip Eidberg, Senior Vice President of Government and Industry Relations for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kip, thanks so much for joining us here. I guess it's my working assumption that labor typically supports the Democratic Party. Is, is that generally true and is that expected to be true here in these midterms? 
Well, thanks for having me on, Paul. And and uh, it might have been true once upon a time, but it is uh, not true today. And, and in fact, the manufacturing vote, the labor vote, as you refer to it, is very much up for swing with one week out to the election. And what our industry are looking for, 2.8 million voters, is concrete proposals from candidates up and down the ballot on how to write our economic ship, how to get the economy back up and running, and how to make sure that our industry manufacturing, U.S. manufacturing, continue to drive the U.S. economy. So, Kip, there was a lot of, I guess, discussion that I, during the beginning of the pandemic about reshoring or onshoring some of the manufacturing that had been offshored, and, and, and we really felt the pain when China shut down, for example, and we couldn't get you know chips and, and things like that. Is that something that your members feel like is a, a reality? Can some of that manufacturing be brought back to the U.S.? It, it can. And, and to, to address uh, your, your first point, you know, we recently surveyed 100 top manufacturing CEOs, and they said that there is still an urgent need to bolster American competitiveness by addressing supply chain challenges, skilled labor shortages, and trade imbalances. And if you do not address those three things, it's going to continue to be difficult for U.S. manufacturers to make things in America you know, in a competitive way. And so we have seen some great improvements since the pandemic, uh, but we are still not back, Paul, to where we were in late 2019. And you know, the only way to do that is to, again, invest in the American worker, right, shore up our supply chains. We've seen some progress through some legislation that Congress passed earlier this year, the CHIPS Act, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. Uh, but, you know, supply chains are still squishy. Uh, and, you know, we still have, you know, shortages of, of skilled labor. And, you know, we're still dealing with tariffs. So all those three things are opportunities for candidates out on the stump right now, you know, to talk to voters about how they plan to address that. And unfortunately, we're still seeing a whole lot of polemics and not enough policy. What about the FX picture of it? There seems to be a lot of questions about whether or not it actually makes sense to have a lot more nearshoring or manufacturing if there is still this long-term bull case for the dollar. How does FX play into all of this? Well, that's, a, that's a great question, Kriti. And I think, look, anytime you can locate, in our case, suppliers close to the manufacturing operations, that's always going to be good news for our industry and for U.S. manufacturing as a whole. And I think the one lesson that we've learned, certainly as an industry coming out of the pandemic, is that, you know, there have been a lot of advantages to global supply chains over the years in terms of competitive pricing and being able to source components from, from different markets. So if one market is down, you can pivot easily to another one. Uh, but that only works if we can actually move goods seamlessly, you know, from one part of the world to another. And I think right now the jury on whether we can continue to do so is still out. So we are very much looking as an industry at how can we bolster relationships with suppliers more locally, whether it's down the road, whether it's, you know, within the state, uh, or whether it's within the country. And, and friendshoring certainly, you know, plays into that as well, right? Particularly with the sort of geopolitical realignment that we're seeing right now, what is going on in Ukraine, questions about China, are they a long-term partner? You know, more and more of our industry is looking to move operations, whether it's, you know, manufacturing or suppliers from, you know, Asia, from other parts of Eastern Europe, uh, Russia, back to the U.S. or back to friendly countries where we have long-term strategic relationships with. Kip, talk to us about the, the labor situation in your industry among uh, your members here. We hear just 
time and time again from companies across the economic spectrum and many different industries that it's just really, really difficult to attract and retain uh, talent. Uh, how is it in your industries? Well, looking at the next decade, Paul, we're, we're facing up to, depending on, again, on obviously on the economic outlook for our industry, but we could be facing a shortage of up to a million uh, skilled laborers in our industry. And, you know, as you're trying to get back to where we were before the pandemic, and by the way, I should say demand for many of our members' products, it's through the roof. Many of them have already sold out all their inventory for next year. Uh, and the only way that we can continue to, to expand and, and to you know, capitalize on strong demand is through you know, a skilled labor force. And it, it's just not there. And, and this is a big problem, not just for our industry, but for U.S. manufacturing. Not enough young people want to explore careers in manufacturing. And we've got to figure this out as a country. How do we put a premium on skilled labor, on, on learning a trade, versus, you know, going through a, a four-year, you know, college degree. It is right. not for everyone. And, you know, if we pursue that path, we're going to continue to be in a world of hurt. So you're, you, you represent uh, a trade group that represents off-road heavy equipment manufacturers across North America. So would an example be a Caterpillar or a, a Deer, something like that? Yeah, that's correct. We have a thousand member companies ranging from those two that you just mentioned all the way down to a lot of small family-owned companies that make both equipment and parts. So is that, I mean... In terms of filling that labor need, is that, you know, you know, maybe increasing support for trade schools or just the trades within the high school situation? Because we hear the same thing from lots of other industries, whether it's the transportation industry or, or others. Yeah, it, it's all of the above, right? It's, it's more support, more investment in community colleges, in trade schools, um, in apprenticeship programs. We, our industry has had some success with that, but we need more of it. Uh, but I think it's also a shift. Uh, in, in people's outlook on education, what it means to have a good education. And I think, you know, what was true two decades, three decades, four decades ago is, is no longer true. You can have a great career in manufacturing. Our industry pays 35% above the national average. Um, and you can get a job right now, Paul, if you walked into a member company and you said you wanted to become a welder, they will train you while paying you a full salary and benefits, and you will have a guaranteed job after a year when you know how to weld. I mean, those are the kinds of jobs that we need to create more of in this country. All right, Kip, good stuff there. Appreciate getting your perspective there. Uh, Kip Eidberg, uh, Senior Vice President, Government and Industry Relations for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Again, the off-road heavy equipment uh, that's uh, across North America. And again, they have over 1,000 uh, company members across 200 product lines. So they represent a pretty big swath of the uh, labor force in industrial America. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.